0: Did you know that Global Consultancy McKinsey is also one of the world's leading design agencies? Or that they have a whole team focused on designing for sustainability and circularity? No, nor did I. Hello, and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we find out how circular approaches are better for people, planet, and profit I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make, and use everything. We'll talk to entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises, and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links, and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our fortnightly edition of Circular Insights. You've probably heard of McKinsey, the global management consultancy, which supports both the World Economic Forum and the Ella MacArthur Foundation with excellent work on the circular economy. McKinsey Design is one of the world's leading design agencies with 17 design hubs around the world. In today's episode, we meet Malin Orebek, who is leading McKinsey Design's work in sustainability and circular economy. Malin is a design strategist with over 25 years of consultancy experience, leading global multidisciplinary teams. And she's a member of the leadership team for McKinsey Design, EMEA. Malin is also a lecturer, keynote speaker and advisor to global brands on people-driven innovation, design for sustainability and business model innovation. Malin shares a wide range of insights and gives us a masterclass introduction to circular design. Companies often don't know where to start with circular, and Malin explains how her team helped McKinsey's clients to overcome linear lock-in, and why adopting circular strategies must be a multidisciplinary effort. We discover how behaviour change can be easier than you think, why material passports are critical for a circular future, Why design is important for services and digital experiences, as well as products. And how finding the right way to package the user experience can transform the success of new services. We hear how designing for durability differs from designing for sharing and reuse. And why Malin believes we shouldn't be nostalgic and try to turn the clock back. We also discuss what can go wrong if you believe what users tell you about their needs and how they plan to use something. So let's meet Malin Urubek, and I'll catch up with you afterwards to share my takeaways. Malin, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you. And first of all, I'd love to know more about your background, Malin, and how you got into industrial design.
1: So, uh, I have a, a long history in the design world. So, I started out as a product designer almost uh, 30 years ago, uh, industrial designer. I have then uh, moved through many different parts of the design world, uh, been working in design strategy, been working then as uh, service design became a topic, been building up that uh, capability within our studio. Uh, and, and and bringing that as well as an as an offered clients, um, and then uh, moving on to uh, work more with customer experience, and today uh, work fully on sustainability, and that, have that as my my key topic. And uh, a lot of that work that I do is um, uh, connected to circular economy. So that's really my my focus.
0: So Malin. That's a really interesting background to how you got into design and i'm curious to know more about what you do now these days at mckinsey
1: so having working my whole life as a design consultant uh the last five years of of my career has been within mckinsey mckinsey being a, a management consultant global management consultancy uh, and, and while many people may know about McKinsey, uh, most people still don't know that McKinsey is today also one of the world's largest design agencies. So we have around 450 designers of multiple um, uh, capabilities and, and profiles across the world in 17 different uh, hubs and locations. So the way we are working now approaching this. Uh, challenges around sustainability is that we're combining, uh, you know, analytics and business rigor with innovation and creativity. Uh, And it's really that mix that is needed to address these challenges because we need to envision the future and we need to be able to build a rigorous and solid business path towards that future uh, in order to realize it. So uh, I think for me, this is an incredibly exciting time. Uh, to be at, at McKinsey and also leading uh, design uh, within uh, and sustainability within McKinsey Design. Uh, so uh, it, it's, it's amazing how much energy and effort is put into this space. And the sustainability practice of McKinsey today is uh, the fastest growing practice across our entire firm. Uh, and there is massive investments in knowledge build-up and really to to uh, accelerate uh, the impact that we can create um, together with our, our clients uh, across the world in this topic.
0: Mm, that's really encouraging to know. And uh, yeah, hopefully it's just going to go from strength to strength as more companies realize that sustainability needs to be at the heart of your business strategy. It's not an add-on. It should inform Everything that you do, right along the value chain, obviously the design of products and services, but also um, you know your financial model, how you do sales and marketing, absolutely everything. I think it's going to be as transformational, you know, circular economy particularly is going to be as transformational as digital was, touching every part of of the business. Um, and so it's not just a not just a bolt on, is it?
1: No, I completely agree. And I also think that companies today who are not looking into these dimensions are at risk uh, and will very soon be at risk uh, because of the big changes that are happening. Uh, Changes that are happening in legislation, changes that are happening in uh, in the customer, consumer uh, sentiments, customer sentiments. Uh, So unless companies take this seriously, uh, they are at risk.
0: Mm, I agree. I agree. Does your career map across to how designers evolved generally over, the, over that time from designing products to more, more about services and experience and now into designing systems?
1: So, uh, y- yes, it does. I mean, when I started, uh, it, it was very much focused on a much more narrow scope so you were looking at the particular product you were looking at a particular specific uh, part of a system uh, and and we would always work very close with users to understand the user needs and then design a solution that matched uh, and met those user needs that's the foundation for everything and it actually is the foundation still today of what you know basically what designers are doing uh, we're looking at the problem we're looking at what you know, the customer and the user needs. Uh, We're working within the constraints of uh, that given context, and we're trying to come up with as many possible solutions to that problem as we can. Uh, That's the process of design, and it still applies, and it applies equally well in circular economy today. So that's the same. Uh, What has changed over time is that, As I was beginning to say in the initially, it was more about that isolated product. Today, it's about designing the entire ecosystem. So we moved from product design to adding more abstract uh, aspects as services, experiences to that uh, and and sort of added the design thinking uh, uh, um, um, theories and methodologies worked with that for a long time but today in order to address the challenges we have we need to to work with systems thinking we need to look at the entire ecosystem and how the product or the service or the experience actually fits into that system we need to understand value chains we need to understand business models Uh, we need to understand a much 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 more complex picture and design for that whole picture and be part of it and that Obviously, requires uh, multidisciplinary uh, teamwork, and we can maybe come back to that later.
0: Mm. Yeah, because I guess user experiences and different perceptions of, um, you know, what constitutes a uh, a rewarding experience or a convenience experience are different. Um, it's just reminded me of, I think I was doing my usual presentation. Um, and going through some circular economy examples and, you know, waving my Fairphone 2 in the air and then talking about how easy it is to repair that. And there was a question later from the audience um, that kind of implied that um, having to repair it myself wasn't as good as being able to send it back to Apple. And yet I'd seen that as a big plus that I can just order order the part it's here in a couple of days And, you know, I watch a quick video online and in five minutes with one screwdriver, I've swapped out the module out of the Fairphone and, you know, and and my phone's working again. I find that much more convenient than having to post the whole phone away and be be without the phone um, while it goes off to Apple. And yet somebody else's perception was that was kind of like a sort of, um, you know, a low budget, less less. Um, less or lower quality experience so I guess it's you know trying to get under the skin of what people will really find convenient and um, and functional for their lifestyles it isn't as simple as as it first appears
1: I think it's always uh, sometimes changing behaviors goes faster than many people think So we had a ban of plastic bags just a couple of years ago. How many weeks did it take for people to get used to that? Just a few weeks. And Mm. then it's a norm. It's the new norm because it happens everywhere. And then suddenly it becomes unthinkable, you know, wasting so much plastic bags. You know, that's strange. Uh, You know, it's like wearing a bike helmet, for example. Mm. I think it's just a very interesting thing. In Sweden, everybody wears a bike helmet. Uh, if you go to Amsterdam, nobody wears a bike helmet. It's just a matter of introducing it as a habit. And then, you know, gradually you change. And suddenly it becomes a norm that everybody accepts. Um, and and it's unthinkable to do the other thing. So I think so, changing some of these behaviors are actually easier than than some people think. And we can get used to a lot of things where people are adaptable.
0: Mm, yeah, that reminds me of a story I heard um, a number of years ago about trying to encourage the uh, nominated driver in, for groups having a night out so the nominated driver that's not drinking alcohol and in America they were really struggling to normalise that and so what they did was encourage the script writers or friends and another soap at the time to just write it into their scripts as normal behaviour and sure enough very quickly um, it just became a normal thing to do. Um so yeah. there are different ways to nudge nudge behavior aren't there
1: and I think this repair things is also, it's the same line of thinking. Uh, it just needs to be reduced, introduced, and it needs to be packaged as a, as a good customer experience. Then it's going to be like introducing Uber was a very, very weird thing in the beginning. First few months, and then people realized this is a, you know, this works really well. And it was thanks to the user experience that was packaged in actually sometimes a better way than re- regular calling a regular taxi. Uh, then people embrace it. So that, that thinking can be applied to so many dimensions.
0: Mm. So in thinking about your circular, um, you know, whether it's a product or service that you're going to introduce, it's really important to think about the user experience and how that's going to work. And I guess not not just thinking about the how does it work in normal circumstances when everything goes right, but how does it work if something goes wrong? Does everything still continue the, the feeling that you want from the user experience? Um, and, and maybe you could talk about what, what kind of things are happening now with your, your clients and kind of um, you know, common, common things, trends that are happening across the design uh, world.
1: Yeah, so if we talk more specifically around the circular economy topic, I think one very common theme that we see among clients is that, you know, many companies struggle to see where to start um, because they are very locked into this linear paradigm uh, and moving towards circular is actually a massive change. It's the the scale of change that many companies are pondering you know, creating a new business unit or setting up a startup to build the the new business model in a separate unit, because it's so different from the original uh, business model. So, and of course, these are big decisions. It involves uh, economy at scale, uh, etc. So many companies are hesitating to move to circular models. So I think that's that's where um, experimentation and prototyping and sort of building solutions fast that are not so expensive uh, to try things out uh, is a, is a viable um, methodology to to move forward faster.
0: Yeah, and are you able to give any examples of those? Maybe not naming companies necessarily, but um, you know, kind of creating creative ways of um, prototyping and coming up with a minimum viable product. Um, I, um, interviewed, uh, somebody from the Olio food sharing app, um, a while ago, and, um, they started with a little WhatsApp group to test, you know, would people actually go to their neighbors to, um, to, to swap food? Um, so it was, it was that minimal, but, you know, just, a, just a handful of people on a WhatsApp group was, was their MVP. So are there any, any good examples that you could share around that? yeah, I mean, this
1: is what we do all the time. So whether it's a digital experience or it's a you know a retail experience or if it's a product experience, we can you know build that up in in cardboard in just a couple of weeks and we can put it in front of users and then they can try to interact with it. So for example, we were trying out a, a, a service for for tires. Um, uh, you know building that digital service putting it in front of users, getting feedback in just a few weeks. Uh, And then by doing that, we can calculate the value for the company of moving to such a sort of service model instead of a purchase model. So I think it's a very, very powerful and fast way to de-risk the move towards circularity or uh, service-based models.
0: Mm. And I guess with those kind of things, it's relatively easy for the company then to test out that new service with a, a niche group of their customers um, and kind of really bed down the how is this going to work when we when we scale it up. Exactly. Yeah. And you've talked about, I mean, it, I'm guessing on the tyres, there was some kind of um, sensor technology um, to keep track of the wear on the tyres and when things need replacing and so on. Um, and is tech hel- helping in other ways in terms of, moving design forward and moving circular services forward
1: so there's there's other you know big uh, developments happening really fast when it comes to tracking materials that are super exciting so w- when you think about reusing uh, and you think about recycling uh, when you think about taking products back and reusing materials from from, from uh, used products of any kind uh, it becomes key to be able to track the materials. Uh, and that technology is developing rapidly. So both how you can uh, tag materials, tag packaging materials, for example, um, with with invisible uh, tagging that uh, infrared can read, and so on. Sorting equipment that can sort high-speed different types of materials for uh, for reuse or recycling um also how these sort of new um, material markets are, are evolving, how you can then trade and buy and sell uh, used materials of certain quantities and certain qualities uh, also enables circularity in new ways. So there, there's there's a lot of technology development that's happening uh, in, in many aspects here that will make this a
0: lot easier. And does that include material passports as well?
1: Exactly. So using mm. things like blockchain to keep track of exactly what that material history has been. So you you, you could basically know uh, what this fragment of plastic have been in a previous life uh, and, and keep track of it, uh, which is a super mind boggling technology that is uh, developing rapidly.
0: Mm. But really important when we think about all the additives that might be um, applied to packaging, depending on what, what it was first used for. Exactly, and then you can
1: know if that uh, material fraction is uh, suitable for making products for children, for example, um, etc. So you can you can know the history of of uh, of materials.
0: Yeah, that's obviously really really important, isn't it? And and particularly as research and science evolve, so that things that we didn't realise were harmful ten years ago, we now know are toxic or they're endocrine disruptors or whatever. Um, exactly. So there's there's lots of lots of things out there that um, weren't considered harmless at the time, but but now are very much so. So thinking about the, um, I always like to talk about three key circular economy strategies. So designing for durability, so we extend the lifetime of products, and they have some resale value when you finish using them, and then designing for sharing and paper use so that we get more productivity out of the same thing, like car share systems and so on. And for both of those two strategies, then designing to close the loop and recover and regenerate materials for the next batch of products. Maybe you could share some examples of, um, you know, the, the approaches for designing for those, those different strategies. So maybe we start with uh, designing for durability and extending lifetime.
1: Sure. So, so I think designing for durability and for long life, uh, it's something that designers have been working with for a long time. I mean, we used to talk about uh, designing for aging with grace. So sort of choosing materials that actually age beautifully and can make a product desirable, even if it's 10 years old, so that it can have a, um, have a, um, a longer life. Uh, obviously that also is about sort of leads into the next uh, topic because uh, designing for sharing or for reuse let's say that we would design a washing machine and say we we don't want to buy washing machines anyway we just want to use them and when they break down we want somebody to come and fix it so could if we could use have washing machines as a service instead Um, then if you don't have the buy and sell model you have the rental model and then you would maybe build washing machines in a different way, you build them more durable. you build them modular uh, you build them much more robust so that they can last Mm. for much longer Uh, so, so many people may not think about the huge difference of designing for reuse models versus designing for sales models, it's not the same products it goes for any type of household product if you have a lawn mower or a power tool or whatever if you're if you're designing that for a service model it needs to be much more robust and modular repairable um, and you can make it you, you can spend more uh, money on choosing really good materials and choosing high quality engines and components because you're going to own it for a long time and you're going to lease it to to the customer uh, but for designers, it means a completely different thing. And and we all know about, you know, vacuum cleaners who, you know, the, the, the vacuum cleaners that my parents bought when I was a kid, they're still working, you know, 40, mm. 50 years later. Uh, whereas the vacuum cleaners that I bought myself 10 years ago is broken. Uh, and that's because nowadays we build products to optimize for a certain length of life. Yeah. So we need to sort of roll that backwards and
0: think differently. Exactly. Right? it's It's so, I find it really... Frustrating that um, you know we used to be, we used to design things um, that lasted much longer. I've just just failed to um, extend the life of my parents' 1983 fridge, which needed a new seal and was starting to leak because so much um, air was getting in. Um, and um, I even found a company that did bespoke fridge seals, so I could. Um, order the seal, but the problem was it turned out that the seal had been glued into the gap between the the outer the metal on the outside of the door and the insulation panel. So that was it. I was um, you know I was I was stumped then. But yeah, so it had lasted from 1983, so it hadn't done too badly. But, you know, we know how to design these things and they they don't cost that much more. But I think particularly for the designing for sharing and paper use, you know, making things easy to use because nobody who shares a washing machine, I know in, in Switzerland in blocks of flats, you're not allowed to have your own washing machine. There are shared ones and you have your particular time of the week, Monday mornings or whatever, to do your washing. And and your company even um, allows you to not go into the office on that particular... T- because it's just part of, you know, uh, the way of life. Um, but nobody's going to get the instruction book out every time to work out how to, you know, get the right cycle. It's got to be intuitive. It's got to be easy to use. And I suppose if something's wearing out or um, needs maintaining, um, that needs to flag itself up like... Um, when I interviewed uh, homey paper use appliances on the podcast um, quite early on. So um, there they'd put their own sensors into the washing machine. It was a standard washing machine. They'd put their own sensor technology and people paid for every wash and you paid less if it was a low temperature wash and, um, you know, a kind of short cycle and so on. But because um cleaning the washing machines out is also important they built into the program that every month you could have a free 60 degree wash to flush all the um the powder and so on through so those kind of things need building in don't they to these these paper use models how do we keep things in um good levels of uh of uh, maintenance and repair um so i can imagine that the, the designing for sharing and paper use is more complicated than designing for um, durability and, and uh, repairability.
1: That is actually happening uh, right now, you know, we being more transparent with what it means. So for a washing machine, for example, you know, being, uh, what is echo? What does it mean? You know, do I save energy? Do I save water? So, Spelling that out for consumers that you can make a choice if you do this that it has this consequence. So, so a lot of products I think can be can help us be much more knowledgeable about what our choices uh, mean uh, mm. and how we can influence uh, our energy use, usage, or water usage, or uh, any other resource use.
0: Yeah, because Homey found that um, by encourage- and this was you know mainly students who were using these washing machines, so they're already. Um, you know, probably not wanting to spend much money on washing their clothes because <laughs> they've got other things they'd rather spend the money on. But once they saw the comparative costs of every wash and, and saw that when they turned the temperature down or went for a shorter wash, they saved a few, a few cents. Within a month or so, they were spending 30% less on energy and water use than they were before they got the washing machines. So this visibility of the choice that you're about to make at every, at every point in the use of something could be transformational, couldn't it, in encouraging people to um, just think about, you know, how much, uh, and maybe it's, maybe it's not just the cost, but the, the carbon impact or the water use or whatever, uh, and, and maybe tracking how much you've saved over the year versus, um, you know, a kind of typical user could be really motivational for people.
1: It's, it's, it's about transparency, and that, and that can really help change behaviors dramatically and reduce numbers quickly and dramatically, mm. just yeah. by letting people know. Um, I, I just want to mention also, just because it's easy to be a bit naive about this and say, oh, it was better in the olden days when things were built more robust. Um, and, and actually today, it, it, you know, we, it's not desirable to roll the clock backwards 30 years, 40 years uh, we also need to think today. We're, we're we're having a much faster innovation cycles, and that's actually a good thing. Uh, we're inventing much more energy efficient products. Uh, so, by just by owning things for longer doesn't necessarily serve, save the planet. Uh, but we need to think much more uh, creatively how we upgrade products, how we build. Uh, so, coming into your third point here on uh, on closing the loop and regenerative materials um how do we build products for reusing the materials for taking them apart for modularly maybe reusing parts that can be reused, uh, replacing with the latest technology for certain components that are actually improving the thestand the or reducing the resource use uh, or energy use or, or or other dimensions. So so thinking about the the, the return uh, of the product and, it, 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 this again comes back to the to the business model. So, I mean, we've spent the hundred years to build business models for the linear world where we we're, we're bringing products and you know goods and services to people one way. Hmm. Uh, now we need to spend the next ten years because we're kind of in a hurry hmm. to build all the reverse models that actually take these products back. Uh, and reuse all the material that are there, that are valuable materials, valuable resources that we could reuse instead of throwing it in the landfill. Um, Because otherwise what's going to happen in the future is that our landfills is going to be the mines of the future where we go to to find material, and that's going to be a mess. So let's, you know, think these systems smarter uh, from the beginning.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I guess that reminds me again of the Fairphone um, which is designed on a modular basis. And so there are, you know, you can upgrade the camera lens if you decide you you really like taking photos, you can upgrade the camera lens. And because it's a module, again, you can just change that yourself. And thinking back to my days at uh, DHL, um, our technical services division had a contract uh, repairing uh, cashpoint machines. And so, um, you know, our engineers weren't, weren't really... You know, trained engineers, they were logistics people, um, but they had a script and they could, um, you know, work out what was wrong. And because the machines were designed on a fairly modular basis, they could swap out one part and and replace with another. And I think um, photocopier machines... And printing machines for commercial premises are often designed on the same basis. So there are lots of ways that we can avoid having to take the whole thing back. And yet, as you say, when something more—that's you know a more energy-efficient way of doing things—comes along, we can just swap out that particular um, module and and get the new one in. Um, and I think you know making things, making it easy for people to do that. Um, can be a big part of the of the future solution, whereby you know it's either a local repairman comes out or you can do it yourself. Um, and really really helping that to happen I think is is one of the fundamental building blocks of the of the circular economy. So um, yeah, so I think it's it's great that um, you know lots, lots is happening, and I agree we don't don't necessarily want to go back, but it does you know it, it does remind us that we used to be able to build things to last without a problem. Um, so um, longevity in itself shouldn't be a design, a design no, challenge. No, exactly. It?
1: exactly. We're, we're setting the rules, right? We, we can do this. We've done it before. Uh, yeah. We can do, do it again. We can make things repairable again. Yeah. That is completely possible. And, and, and also, you know, this also obviously leads towards creating models for growth for companies um, that are disconnected from uh, resource use. Or resource depletion. So decoupling growth from resource depletion. I think that's the whole thing uh, where, you know, today growth has been connected to selling as many products as possible. And then that obviously connects back to using more resources. It's just, we need to remake that model and, and create other forms of growth.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree.
1: Or value creation, if you talk about
0: it. Yeah. Right. And, and um, you know, looking at the trends on that, it's it's quite scary. I was doing a... um a webinar this week and I was looking at material use with some figures from the World Bank and United Nations, I think it was, and that our use of materials, so fossil fuels, metals, non-metallic minerals and biomass, has gone up 70% faster than population growth over the last 50 years. Um, So we really do need to kind of decouple and and bend that curve, don't we? So um, thinking about the design process i guess you're starting with um you know sketches and descriptions and that kind of thing how do you then move on to um you know making it a bit more real for the client you know in terms of prototyping and um coming up with a minimum viable product and that kind of thing maybe you could describe a few of the uh the things that you do there
1: yeah, so, so so usually I talk about sort of three dimensions of, uh, of, of the designers toolkit that are really useful uh, and that could be applied and used by basically any practitioner, actually, because it's, it's, it's more methodologies and, and ways of, to think about it. Uh, so first of all, uh, it's about visualizing the future. So drawing up what it is that you're aiming for, what does that future look like? And I think that's, again, addressing that challenge we started out talking about, uh, where to start. Because if you're not really knowing what the circular economy reality looks like, you're not, you don't know what you need to build and you know, don't know where you're going. So really trying to just visualize what that future could look like. Um, in scenarios, could be alternative scenarios. What could it be? What is it that we're aiming for? It's a great way to align different teams towards you know, the same direction. So that's the first thing. The second thing is then, once you have that vision, prototype it. Build it really quickly. Build a mock-up. Try it. Test it with a few people. Uh, build it in cardboard, as we say. Uh, it's a lot cheaper to change things in cardboard than you know, once you've built something for real. Uh, so, so try it, and that way you can de-risk any initiative. It's a fast way to also kill the ideas that actually didn't work. You know, you, you can then know that pretty quickly. Uh, and and the third one uh, is is really thinking about designing solutions that have the user experience and the behavior of users in mind, because it is. I mean, we already talked about this. It, it is a really, really powerful and oftentimes unused dimension of change uh, that we actually can orchestrate if we do the number one and the number two uh,
0: well. And so how do, you, how do you do that from a practical point of view? Do you do focus groups? Do you, you know, how, how do you make sure that you've not just imagined with a hopeful that's so, so typically what the user will want
1: we, to do. we do ethnographic type studies where we spend longer times with users. We spend half a day with individual people to understand more deeply what is important to them. Uh, why do they make the choices that they make? Uh, How do they think about things? How do do they interpret information? Oftentimes, they're different from you and me. Uh, And then, obviously, you need to talk about the real people who are actually your target group for a certain product or service, Uh, not the people down the hallway in your office. Uh, You need to go out and talk to, uh, you know, if you're if you're uh, building solutions for. Um, you know, people who bike. Then you need to talk to bikers. If you're building something for farmers, you need to talk to farmers. Like you really have to talk to the right people and spend time with them and deeply understand their 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 challenges, their needs, their pain points, etc. Uh, and then also take these ideas and prototypes to them uh, and let them use them also over time. Not only just have a look for 15 minutes and give a few comments, but actually maybe trying it for a week or two. Ask them to write a diary about what happened and what went wrong and what went well and how did it work. And uh, actually would like to have this feature that I didn't have or whatever it is that you need to add or remove or change. And that way you learn and then you iterate and you improve and then you take it to the users again and then you improve and, you know, and, and, and on and on. So really, really very, very co- co-creation <laughs> together with users is the, is the most effective way. And this works for, you know, regular product design, but it also works really well for these visionary new type of uh, scenarios. Uh, So it doesn't necessarily have to be a a product that we know existed. It could also be a new ecosystem for reuse, for example, Mm. of things that people haven't been reusing before. So not knowing how it works.
0: Yeah, sure. And I'm wondering whether you come up against this problem of the, I think, some psychologists have called it the um, action intention gap. So where people say they'll do one thing, but when it comes to it, they stick with their old habits. Is that yeah. something that's, you know, how do you overcome um, the, the risk of that?
1: That's exactly why you should spend time with people a little bit longer. So it's a classic uh, example from back in the days when we were working with designing hammers. Uh, or, or, or sorry, we were working with designing wrenches, <laughs> uh, and we were studying how people would use wrenches in uh, in, in a workshop. Um, and and then when we asked people about you know how they use wrenches and so on, nobody. We would ask them, "Do you ever use this to sort of smash your as a hammer to smash the things that you're working on?" And everybody would say, "No, no, no, no I don't." You know, if, then I would go and fetch a hammer. But if we just stayed around in the workshop for long enough, uh, observing what they do, everybody used a wrench as a hammer. Uh, and, and then of course <laughs> you need to design the wrench so it can, you know, be strong in the right points. So it actually can work as, to, as a hammer or when you're smashing things. So it doesn't break down. So actually that led to a reshaping of the, 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 the goods in the, in the wrench. So it would be uh, uh, sturdy enough for that type of treatment, but, but it's, People don't do what they say they do. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: people, that's why you need to observe um, over a longer time. Um, because also there's a lot of this tacit knowledge. People don't even know what they're doing and can't even describe some of these dimensions. They just do it without thinking about it.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a, I'm really kind of picturing the, um, the workshop. And you could see why people would say they don't do that because they're not supposed to do that. Um, And then I'm also reminded of um, there are some kind of, um, uh, you know, house redesign uh, programs in the UK. And one of the clever things they do is is set up cameras in people's houses to see which rooms they use most. And often people really, you know, underestimate the time that they spend in the in the kitchen or the time they spend in, you know, wherever it is. Um, And so that when they see this kind of analysis, they're often quite shocked. You know there there's there there's no kind of um i shouldn't be saying this because i'm not supposed to be doing it it's you know people just don't don't kind of um have have the sort of minds that track (laughs) no exactly we we were working with
1: with the um with the, the 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 topic of understanding how people want to charge phones in their homes if you think about you can have um wireless charging And then that gives completely new opportunities. So actually this client didn't know, where do you want to do wireless charging? If you would just place your phone for charging anywhere in your home, where would it be? Uh, Where would we position our wireless uh, devices or technology? So we just equipped, you know, a number of families with stickers. And we asked them to go around, you know, use these stickers for a couple of weeks and just add the stickers to places in your home where you would like to charge your phone. Uh, and then you would see all sorts of different behaviors, everything from, you know, in the bathroom to across the kitchen table or, you know, at your sofa or, you know, weird kind of places. So, so that very easy, simple way of enabling people to, to explore things as their daily life goes by.
0: So, Malin, you've already given us lots of great tips there for people wanting to design products and, and systems and services. But thinking back of your in terms of your lessons learned in helping companies to go circular, um, would there, is there another top tip that you'd share with people wanting to take their business more circular?
1: Yes, I think I started out with this. Uh, I mean, the first... The first thing to um, embrace is really this is a multidisciplinary effort because it requires rethinking such a big part of your business. Um, so you need to look at the entire value chain. You need to look at how you source materials, how you use materials, how you design your products, how you take your products to market, how you talk to your customers, how you take those products back, uh, how you provide them to to customers. Do you sell them or rent them? Or how, how the whole the whole business is included. So you need experts of all of these different dimensions of your business. Otherwise is very difficult so that's the first thing and that's also I would say uh, the beauty of being part of a big consultancy like McKinsey because you know having access to expertise of all those different fields makes it a completely different uh, story Um, because you know as, as as an individual designer I can come up with all of these ideas but if I can't Calculate the business case of making it happen. Uh, you know, it's that this idea, how brilliant it is, is still gonna end up in a drawer. So that's the first thing. You know, be, being truly multidisciplinary about it. Uh, the second thing, you know, has been mentioned many times in uh, podcasts like this. Make sure you have leadership vision uh, and leadership commitment because without it, it's not gonna happen and you know this is really happening now there's so many companies um taking on very very ambitious commitments uh, on circularity and on uh, emission reductions etc um that the opportunity is huge you know to help all these leaders um uh, make their their commitments come true um and then you know the third point i think is more around Be ready to work with your full staff of employees to embrace change because there's a lot of that uh, as well. So, and I think oftentimes the employees in the company are are forgotten uh, in many organizations that think a little bit more top down. So you think that you can decide things on the top and then just implement it. Um, Our design processes are more trying to build things bottom up because then it implements itself. Um, So thinking about how to bring people along on the journey towards the change and bring them in early on, I think would be the third
0: point. Yeah, that's really insightful. And it kind of links back to what you said about um, it's multidisciplinary because by involving the entire staff, you're getting all those different perspectives of, and some of these may be things that, you know, people have raised before and, and sort of, you know, been ignored about um, this is a, this is a slight problem. So it gives you the opportunity to solve other problems at the same time. Um, You know, things that have always been um, an issue with the company, like, you know, some component that always fails or whatever. Um, And also to overcome any um, uh, difficulties in, in terms of how a circular value chain will, will work differently. Like, Um, You know, have you remembered how to get the product back at the end of use? Um, If the customer has no way of packaging it up well, the likelihood is it'll it'll come back and be unusable. Um, So so those kind of simple things. Thank you. Thank you. Those are those are really insightful tips. And Malin, um, thinking about from a, a more personal point of view, which of your values do you think helps move us towards a better world—one that's more sustainable and fairer—and and, and why do you think that value is important?
1: Yeah, so I think I would more talking about it as purpose. Mm-hmm. So for me, purpose has always been a key part of even why I became a designer in the in the first place. I, I want that already from the beginning to, uh, to solve problems, to improve something for people, you know, improve solutions that improve the world, in, improve everyday life for people. That was the key motivator for me being a product designer in the first place. Um, and I still think that still holds. So uh, our, our uh, company or within McKinsey Design, our purpose statement is around designing change that matters uh and for me that is exactly what i'm doing and and there's nothing that matters more now than than saving our planet for future generations uh and that's what we intend to do uh and we're you know putting all our creative minds that we have available towards this challenge uh and there is no greater purpose than that and that motivates me to go to work every day
0: yeah i, I can imagine it does and i really like that um you know designing change that matters that's a um a great sort of uh, mission statement isn't it and a uh, statement of purpose so um yeah I, I can I can see how that would get get the team into the office in or or working from home <laughs> in um uh, you know in a, in a highly motivated state so Malin, is there anyone you'd recommend as a future guest for the program to help? Um, you know, explain how the circular economy is happening around the world?
1: Yes, I was thinking about this question and there is uh, a guy, his name is Tom Zaki. I hope I pronounce his name right, but he's the CEO of TerraCycle. I'm sure you know of him. Yeah, I think he would be a really cool person to have on the uh, on the podcast Um, He's uh, also the founder of Loop, uh, which is, a a, a for anyone who doesn't know, a business model that provides reusable food uh, packaging and food containers, collaborating with a lot of big, big brands to make this happen. And I think the interesting thing with with him and with Loop is that they're doing something, putting it in the market, something that many, many brands have said for a long time can't be done. And they're just doing it, making it happen. Uh, And I think also in the process, discovering additional value from this way of of consuming products that people didn't think about um um, just by making it happen and providing it so i think that would be an interesting person to listen to
0: yeah thank you and i i um follow what terracycle and and loop do quite quite closely and um yeah i'm a big admirer of them so i think he'd be great to have on the podcast thank you and malin how can people find out more and get in touch with you and the mckinsey design team
1: so you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, just search for my name on LinkedIn. Um, McKinsey Design have a sort of sub page on mckinsey.com. Uh, if you look for um, business functions, you'll find design under digital. Uh, and there's some more information about we do, what we do and who we are. Uh, there's also a LinkedIn page for McKinsey Design uh, that you can follow if you want to know a little bit more about what we do. So those would be the main, main places to find us.
0: Great, thank you. And I'll put all those links in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com so people can um, look you up and find out more about all the great stuff that you're doing and how you're all designing change that matters. I love that phrase. So Malin, thank you very much for sharing all those insights. I, I you know, think it's really exciting what you're doing and it's also incredibly encouraging that big consultancies like McKinsey are really getting on board with making this change happen. And, you know, we need more and more consultancies to be encouraging their clients to find circular ways of doing things instead of just continuing with take, make, waste and, and business as usual, and, you know, getting, getting bigger and consuming more. We've got to break that link, haven't we, between resource consumption and our massive ecological footprint and good standards of living for everybody. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Malin's approach underlined the importance of systems thinking. Maybe in the linear economy, we tend to see our business, product or service as being standalone or separate, what we might call silo thinking. Instead, we must see the product or service as part of a much bigger system, not just the value chain in your business or organisation, but part of a system for your customer, the user. How is their system affected by what you offer? and how will it help or hinder them? What unforeseen consequences might you have missed and how could you explore these? Malin also encouraged us to use experimentation and prototyping. How could you build some quick pilots or models that would be inexpensive and help you try out things before you've invested lots of time and money into a new solution? Creating a cheap, minimum viable product to test might help you avoid willful blindness too, where you're so emotionally invested in the project that you don't spot the pitfalls and risks. I'd have liked the time to ask more questions about user engagement. It sounded as though this needed its own design process. It's important to work out how to set up tests so you can discover how people will really use the product or service on both bad days and good days, when they're in a rush and lots of other scenarios. Malin summed up circular design with her three tips. First, make circular projects a multidisciplinary effort and look at the whole value chain. Second, make sure you have leadership vision and commitment. And third, be ready to work with all your colleagues so that everyone in the business embraces change. That's it for this episode of the Circular Economy Podcast. This and the last few episodes have been a bit longer, and I'd love to know whether that works for you. Should we go back to around 35-minute episodes? Or does a longer conversation allow us to dig deeper into the why and how of circular economy solutions? Drop us an email to podcast at rethinkglobal.info and let us know what you think. And if you like this podcast, please tell your friends and rate and review us in your podcast app. It really does help to spread the word. That's it for this episode of the Circular Economy podcast. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you use circular, sustainable approaches to make a better world for people, planet and your business. Get in touch via the website or connect with me on LinkedIn. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one or buy the new edition of my award winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business, which takes you through the concepts and practicalities, including lots of real examples from around the world. Make sure you get the edition with the orange cover, which has a new chapter on packaging, lots of extra examples and updated research in every chapter. You can find resources and links mentioned in today's episode, as well as a transcript of the conversation at rethinkglobal.info, where you can find out how we help you succeed with Circular.